Hi everyone, welcome to Internist Guide 2, a limited series dedicated to high yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Dominic Ng from Endocrinology on the CCS guideline for the management of dyslipidemia for the prevention of cardiovascular disease in the adult, released in 2021. Dr. Dominic Ng is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto, as well as a staff endocrinologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Ng has a special research interest in lipid disorders and diabetes. He runs a basic science research laboratory at the Keenan Research Centre at the Lika Shing Knowledge Institute in Toronto, with his current research focusing on the novel roles of lipids in the development of heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ng. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Dr. Ng, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How is dyslipidemia part of your clinical practice? Yeah, thank you for asking. I have been an endocrinologist at St. Michael's Hospital. I've engaged in different aspects of research on dyslipidemia over the years, and I really find the topic of dyslipidemia very interesting, uh, especially in the way it relates to cardiovascular disease and, and the diabetes and other metabolic diseases. So uh, once I get started in this, um, in this field, I never look back. Great. Well, we're happy to have you on as an expert to talk us through these guidelines. So based on these guidelines, in whom should we be testing lipid levels? There is the concept of a universal screening in many of the fields of medicine, and uh, dyslipidemia is one of them. Um, the guideline recommends a universal screening for any individual over 40, uh, irrespective of their, uh, their health status. Um, however, on top of that, there are a whole host of uh, factors which would trigger a screening panel well before they, they turn 40. So the, the examples are conventional cardiovascular risk factors. There may be evidence of genetic driven dyslipidemia, or there's a whole host of newer risk factors that have been identified, inflammatory disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel diseases, COPD, uh, etc. And uh, additional uh, non-conventional risk factors include um, hypertensive, the disease of pregnancy, um, erectile dysfunction, etc. So that's the, the, the recommendation. Great. So once we've identified that someone needs lipid screening, how do we screen for dyslipidemia? If you look at a guideline document, it recommends obviously the history and the physical. And then of course the lipid panel is the core of the screening process. And in this core panel, it includes measuring total cholesterol, measuring triglyceride, and measuring HDL cholesterol. Um, these can be done quite conveniently and, and quite affordably. And beyond that, there are additional markers that one can incorporate depends on the need of the specific individual. But those are the core panel that um, we use and then the lab would provide the calculated LDL, et cetera. The guidelines also mention non-HDL cholesterol and ApoB. What's their role in lipid screening? Right. These two lipid markers have been around for a long, long time, but we are increasingly recognizing their importance because um, they come through as, a very ex as excellent uh, risk markers in clinical studies, in large-scale epidemiologic studies, in clinical trials, post hoc analysis, and so on and so forth. The utility of these two markers primarily are to capture proatherogenic lipoprotein particles that might be missed out if you only focus on LDL cholesterol. 
Um, one example is when somebody has uh, some degree of hypertriglyceridemia, non-HDL or ApoB or both is going to come through as more superior than LDL in terms of quantifying the proatherogenic fraction of the lipoproteins. They're strongly advocated to use them more uh, extensively in today's environment, um, and they are pro proven to be excellent markers and superior to the LDL, in fact. So then in your average patient, are you primarily relying on the LDL level or are you starting to look at these other levels as well in your typical kind of dyslipidemia screening patient? Yeah, well, the, the way the things uh, come through in clinical lipidology is that LDL has always been the focus in terms of as a target for clinical trials, a target for lowering because we know a lot about LDL being proatherogenic. That being said, in the current environment, we realize that an LDL alone would miss out some of the proatherogenic fractions. Sometimes we call it triglyceride-rich lipoproteins, which will show up in patients with hypertriglyceridemia. And in that uh, situation, HDL, cholesterol, or ApoB would capture those better than LDL alone. I see. So in the presence of high triglyceride levels, that's when you're really relying more so on these alternative markers. Exactly. Okay, very good. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, the guidelines also mention lipoprotein A. So what's the role of lipoprotein A in lipid screening? It's a very interesting story. LPA has been around for a long, long time, but it has been challenging circulating particle to characterize in terms of uh, its role in atherosclerosis. That being said, now when we accumulate all of this data, it becomes very clear that LPA is an independent risk marker. So it adds to your risk uh, estimate of an individual if they were elevated to a certain degree. So we are very good at data to give us an idea of how much uh, risk adjustment in the risk assessment that we should be carried out if the LPA is elevated. So it becomes a very useful marker in our risk uh, assessment package. So when using lipoprotein A then for risk assessment, how often would you be testing it in your average patient? Uh, that's an interesting, very interesting question because the level of LPA is primarily driven by genetics. So there is very little environmental factor to modify it. So the recommendation at the current time is that you only have to measure it once in a patient's lifetime. That's in part also because um, so far there are very little lipid modifying agents would be able to impact on the LPA level. So it would be a once in a lifetime measurement, at least for now, until we have developed a um, strategy that we can modify LPA. Very interesting. So it's quite distinct from the other markers in that sense, it seems. That's exactly right. Now, the current guidelines recommend completing cardiovascular risk assessment every five years for all patients age 40 to 75 years old using either the Framingham risk score or the cardiovascular life expectancy model. What do risk assessment models such as the FRS or the CLEM have in the decision to initiate statin therapy? I'm glad you asked. Based on the current guideline structure, a significant proportion of people would not have to go through any of the risk, risk engine assessment. Um, as long as we can identify them as one of the so-called statin indicated conditions. So these are individuals with sufficiently high risk that uh, we can go directly into recommending statins as part of the risk lowering strategy. 
However, for many of those who don't fit into this uh, statin indicating conditions, um, the risk, uh, Framingham risk calculation comes in handy. They can actually quantify individuals' uh, short-term 10-year risk, and uh, we can uh, use that as a guide to initiate statin therapy for those who are in the higher uh, end of the risk spectrum. Um, the CLAM is a, a very similar, has a very similar function, but it also helped to um, quantify risk from a different angles. Um, it actually quantifies your cardiovascular age. So it's a different way of uh, conveying the risk to, the, to a given patient. Um, in terms of decision uh, in using statins on these individuals, Framingham risk uh, score is a very convenient tool. You just separate the patient into high risk, intermediate risk, or low risk, and then you can gauge your recommendation accordingly. In your own practice, do you tend to use the CLEM versus the FRS, one more commonly than the other? Um, yeah, I, I, I may be biased. I, I, I'm so comfortable using the Framingham risk score and I just use it. That to me is quite enough to actually come up with some kind of the key point to, to engage in a conversation with the patient. Great, thank you. Now the guidelines also mention a CAC score. What is a CAC score and when do you use it? CAC score is a non-invasive way of imaging plaque burden of an individual in the plaque burden, especially in the coronary uh, bed. So it's a CT scan based um, imaging uh, system. And then it primarily just uh, visualize the amount of calcium that's present in the, in, in the heart is a very reliable way of quantifying the plaque burden in an individual. So it will help to quantify the, and assess the atherosclerosis burden in an individual based on structural changes, in this case, calcium um, accumulation. So it's more re reflective of uh, actually plaque development in an individual, as opposed to um, the global Framingham risk, which incorporate all of the risk factors and then get providing some a, a different kind of risk assessment. So it's complementary in a way to help to guide the risk quantification and provide advice in terms of intervention. In your own practice, have you seen the CAC score used quite often, or is this something that's still coming up the pipeline? CAC score required dedicated setup. You, you need the equipment, um, you need the infrastructure, and you also engage people who is actually uh, develop the algorithm to, and then uh, the system to, to, to make it work. So it's very uh, dependent on the uh, given center. So I, I tend not to rely on that too much if I could get away without using it, but it clearly is a one uh, important tool to have. So under these guidelines, which patients qualify for statin therapy? Um, as I mentioned, um, if the patient uh, can be identified to fit in one of the uh, statin-indicated conditions, then uh, you can automatically engage in a conversation with the patient starting statin therapy uh, because uh, these people have high enough a risk that there is proven a benefit of starting um, statin. Of course, in those people, you also want to engage in other lifestyle modifications um, to enhance the risk reduction as an overall total package in terms of uh, risk reduction strategy. If they don't fit into one of those statin conditions, then as I mentioned, then one can use a Framingham risk score 
And um, for those who fit into the high-risk category, like 10-year risk of over 20%, so those people would fall into the stock indicated in that sense. And if they're in the intermediate risk category or even in low-risk category, so there are selected individuals in those um, situations who might benefit from a, a, a statin therapy. So we'll just look at what are the other additional risk markers. And amongst them, use, use of a CAC score can help to uh, reclassify the patient's uh, risk. That's especially helpful in the patients in the uh, intermediate risk category. A high CAC score would sway the person, uh, the doctor to go into a statin therapy a low um, CAC score would dissuade doctor to engage in statin therapy. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times now these statin-indicated conditions. Can you provide some examples of what some of those might be? Sure. Um, the guideline have clearly identified those conditions. And on the one end of the spectrum, the high-risk spectrum end of the spectrum, you're talking about a patient with established ASCBD. So those people are automatically statin-indicated. And on the other end of the spectrum, we are talking about individuals with LDL greater than five when our secondary factors are being ruled out. And these people are also at high enough risk to benefit from statin therapy. And in the middle group, you're talking about patients with, uh, most patients with type two diabetes, a patient with chronic kidney disease with the EGFR less than 60, or a patient with abdominal aortic aneurysm. So these are the individuals who would also be included in the statin indicated conditions group. I see, thank you. So we've talked about statin therapy. Now I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about non-statin therapy as well. Sure. So the new guidelines define treatment thresholds for when you would intensify lipid lowering therapy using non-statin agents. Mm -hmm. Why is this update significant? And can you outline some of the details of this update? Sure. As you are well aware, for many years, all the clinical trials are based on statin as the primary um, intervention, interventional agent. And they come through as a very powerful tool to convincingly making statin as a main therapeutic uh, agent. On the other hand, um, people have always thought that perhaps uh, LDL lowering is really responsible for the reduction of cardiovascular events. So the emergence of the non-statin therapy, they're proving themselves to, be, uh, to have comparable effectiveness in reducing cardiovascular events is a major development. And amongst them, two, the acetamide, which is cholesterol absorption inhibitor, and also the newer class of PCSK9 inhibitors, all come through in cardiovascular outcome trial to be effective in reducing cardiovascular events. So they obviously would, would uh, come through as a being uh, important addition, therapeutic armamentarium. So for a particular patient then, how would you know when to add on one of these therapies versus deciding that the statin alone might be sufficient? Sure. Well, they, they, the latest iteration of the guideline has actually made it very easy. So they have actually provided a concept called thresholds. Um, the thresholds are applied to LD, on-treatment LDL or the equivalence of on-treatment non-HDL or on-treatment APOB. And they set up the threshold for which if the patient's the statin regimen fails to reach the, the threshold, then you can start the, considering the non-statin therapy as an add-on and help them bring it through to, to below the threshold level. And beyond, and once, once they've reached the on-treatment level below the threshold, they, they can just stop the regimen right there. They don't have to worry about the further intensification. And so we have a very nice, um, easy to use algorithm to, to apply the non-statins. Well, that's very handy. I'm glad for that aspect of the update. So 
in which patients would you consider using a PCSK9 inhibitor prior to adding ezetimibe as your first adjunct therapy? As you know, um, PCSK9 in, uh, currently is still a very expensive uh, therapeutic uh, agent. And the, the way we get about accessing PCSK9 by virtually any funding agency, including private drug insurance or even the government, uh, they all uniformly required prior use of acetamide uh, before they would authorize the use of PCSK inhibitor. So the order is would be a statins, um, trial acetamide, and if they still fail to reach target or threshold, they would uh, support the use of PCSK inhibitor. So it sounds like ezetimibe is essentially always your second line agent and PCSK9 inhibitors are always, always your third line agent then. Virtually, virtually that's the, that's the way it is uh, currently. What is icosapent ethyl and when should it be used? All right, so this is a very exciting uh, development in terms of uh, lipid modifying uh, th therapies. Uh, Icosapen ethyl is a very uh, specific pharmacological formulation of uh, what we know as the EPA. EPA is one uh, of the omega-3 fatty acids that can occur in nature, but uh, we can also be synthesized. And that they have over the years been proven to be effective in reducing triglyceride in individuals who take them. And then the, now we found that they also have additional beneficial effect in some of the pathway that promote atherosclerosis. And it's felt that the EPA uh, may be the major omega-3 fatty acid that actually um, responsible for the cardiovascular protective mechanism, although the prior uh, EPS-based agent had not been successful in established clear cardiovascular benefit from the outcome trial in the context of an uh, outcome trial. And uh, icosapan ethyl is a very specific formulation, which is it's an ethyl group attached to the EPA backbone and is a carefully purified and formulated into the pharmacological agent in terms of capsule. That's how this uh, agent come about and originally developed for lowering triglyceride, but before too long, people found that they have so many other um, beneficial effects in terms of a pathway that, that drives atherosclerosis, they decided to test it on a cardiovascular outcome, resoundingly positive. So it's a great develop, drug development. Sounds like a big leap forwards in cardiovascular protection and in dyslipidemia. It surely is. So in, in your patient population then, who would you be prescribing this to? Right now, we are, we are relying on what comes through in the reduced trial. And in a reduced trial, which was the one and only trial that proved the icospan ethyl to be, to be beneficial in terms of reducing cardiovascular outcome, it was designed to test on in high-risk individuals only. So these are the individuals either with established ASCVD with moderate hypertriglyceridemia, or they have diabetes plus one risk factors and moderate hypertriglyceridemia. And these people have, and, and the people involved in the trials all uh, on maximum tolerance statins. I would apply to the agent to individual that fits into this uh, two, one of the two categories. I'm wondering, so we have this icosapent ethyl um, and mm -hmm. we have a zetamibe. So if you have a patient who fits into the reduce it trial criteria, which one are you reaching for as your first adjunct? Is it still a zetamibe? Well, uh, the, the, the answer I'm giving you is a very practical one. 
the patent for acetamide has long uh, expired. So the cost of acetamide is, um, is only a fraction of that of uh, icosapan ethyl. So in that regard, uh, accessibility is actually the major <laughs> determining factor in terms of which was the next uh, agent to use. But I would love to be able to use both. They, they should be complementary. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much, Dr. Ng, for All right. For Thank the, you for having time. me. Thank you for listening to this episode on the CCS Guideline for the Management of Dyslipidemia for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease in the Adult, released in 2021. Special thanks to Dr. Dominic Ng for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded by Catherine Luer and produced by Christoph Kowalik. The Internist Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers Alison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Basantha Mohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.